already served us well. If you have your scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the first epistle to the Corinthian believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Just a brief passage this morning. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here. You know us and you know our needs. You know the joys and the heartaches of this church family. We cry out to you, Lord, asking for your help, asking that you would meet us intimately and personally. Father, we pray that your grace would abound. Father, I do particularly ask for Les and Jean and for the family. I pray for an abounding grace. I pray for your help, comfort, and strength. Father, we we pray that you'd be near this family. Father, for Betsy and the loss of her mom, for Deb and Jamie and Joe, we pray as well for strength for them, even in the services this week. We thank you, Lord, that you have bound us together, that we have the privilege of rejoicing and grieving, and we pray that we might do it with the, the love of Christ. I pray now for eyes to see and ears to hear what you've set before your people. Help me, Lord, to be an effective servant. Keep me from saying that which would be unhelpful or confusing. Superintend my speech, I ask, that your people might be built up. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Snow White's wicked stepmother asks, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest? of them all. If you stop and think about that, that's a really pathetic way to live. Standing in front of the mirror, she cannot not think about herself. In fact, this poor gal is in prison to self. Years ago, one of my favorite devotional writers, David Roper, used a term that I latched onto. He called Part of our sin issue, a smothering absorption with self. A smothering absorption with self. And surely Snow White's stepmother is a cautionary tale. Self is pressing her down, wringing whatever might be good or kind out of her. Strangely, it's all too possible that we find ourselves on a sort of similar level, positioned in front of mirrors, asking questions like this. Who's the fairest, smartest, 
the funniest, the most respected, the most admired, dare I say it, the holiest, the most humble. We do ask ourselves strange questions. Our possessions, our reputations, our appearance, our service, our giving, it all becomes fodder for the idol factory. The tragedy in these assessments and these expectations is that they always leave us wrung out and insecure. You can't live on a performance treadmill and ever really find joy. That theologian Mick Jagger, I think, says it well. I can't get no satisfaction. Because you can't. You can't find it in your performance. Even children of the high king can find themselves cowering before the court of public opinion, never actually measuring up. It's not just that we're not good enough or bright enough or stylish enough or funny enough or popular enough or caring enough. It's that we can't stop thinking about ourselves. It's almost as though we're on a continuous loop. It's a broken record. It's tiresome and tedious and wearisome. And it robs away the good affections that we should have in seeing and savoring the altogether lovely one, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we have a really interesting perspective. The Apostle Paul has discovered something that has set him free from some of the man-made prisons that abound in our world. And because he is free, he is free indeed. He, he lives with a kind of delicious liberty that I long for and that I hope you long for. His learning, his looks, his reputation, his popularity, none of that controls him. And so because of that, he's free. After years of counseling God's people, one of the things that I've discovered is that even the best of us and those that we might say are the most successful or the most adjusted still live in the shadow of hurts and pains of things that took place on playgrounds that no longer even exist. Wounds, shame, things that were said about us, false truths that we have believed about us, the wounds of sin, the senseless fears. I mean, you, many of you, like me, were not invited to the cool kids' table. And the weird thing is, some of that still holds sway in our lives. I say it this way, by the time my face cleared up, my hair fell out. (laughs) So I never really got invited to the cool kids' table. The reality is that as you look at 1 Corinthians 4, now you're wondering what has to do with anything. But as you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you realize that the Apostle Paul is operating on a totally different wavelength. There are some keys that he has discovered, and it has unlocked the prison of self. He is gloriously, deliciously free. Now, the world's answer to the dilemma of self is more self. Typically, what they would say is that you need more self-esteem. You got to love yourself more. You got to hug yourself more. You got to forgive yourself. You got to appreciate yourself. You got to recognize what a glorious person you are. 
And it should come as no surprise that God's word offers us another solution. It's not more self-esteem. It's, in fact, something totally different. It's Christ-esteem. Years ago, I read a book by Don Mateson on counseling, and it was entitled, Christ-esteem, Where the Search for Self-Esteem Ends. And it was very, very helpful to me in ministry. And in a sense, as we come to 1 Corinthians 4, we, we, we come to Paul's discovery. What is it that set him free? Well, just a little bit of context. You, you know that it's written to the Corinthian church, and you know that the Corinthian church was not famous for its maturity. Squabbles, alliances, divisions, pettiness, and bickering abounded. It was ugly stuff unbefitting the people of God. Because let's be square, nothing is more disturbing than believers behaving badly. The Corinthians were playing favorites, acting parts, leveraging influence, and vying for special privileges. But you'll notice in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 4 that Paul is above that when he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's a servant of the Most High God. He's not serving, essentially, the Corinthians. Rather, he's serving the Most High God. And in verse 2, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Not successful or popular, but faithful. Paul shares with the Corinthians his primary concern, which is faithfulness. Then he begins to speak about this freedom that he is enjoying in Christ. There are really sort of three parts to this passage. First of all, you'll notice with me from the first part of verse 3 that Paul is free from the bondage of the Corinthians' assessment. Paul is free from the bondage of the Corinthians' assessment. In verse 3 it says, But with me it is a very small thing, tiny thing, that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Now stop and let that land on your conscience. Here's the Apostle Paul carried along in the inspiration of Scripture. And he is saying, you know what, Corinthians? It's not a big thing that you judge me. It's fantastic. He's been set free from their assessment. Now, we know from the background story of Corinthians that the Corinthians really, really liked a powerful stage presence. And Paul didn't have it. In fact, his appearance was unimpressive His speech to them was not that of a Grecian actor. Oh, no, it was just one great truth. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It was like he was a one-trick pony, if you will. And it wasn't because he was academically weak. It was because he had made this discovery, and the most discovery, the most amazing discovery on earth was the fact that Jesus died for his sins. And when the apostle Paul then saw, got up from the dust of the Damascus road, having seen the light, though now physically he was blind, he had made the penultimate discovery that he had in fact been persecuting not merely Christians, but Jesus, the Lord, Master, and Messiah. But for the Corinthians, I mean, Paul, he he certainly is no eloquent Apollos. He lacks the power of the Apostle Peter. Wouldn't that be crushing? 
Wouldn't it be crushing to hear a church say, you know what, you're really not that much of a speaker and your presence is unimpressive. And yet Paul says here in verse 3, I don't care what you say about me. That's an amazing liberty that he has. He's operating on a different wavelength. He's not panning after the elusive stamp of approval that the Corinthians might offer to him. Many of us find ourselves struggling in this carnival of mirrors. I'll give you an illustration of this. Even, and I'll bring it inside pastor's mind and heart. Over the years of preaching, sometimes you hear from the flock that you're shepherding, you know, I really wish you were, I don't know, funnier, a little more entertaining. I wish you weren't so serious. Or, you know, I think you're a little too light, and there's too much levity. I want some strong meat and doctrine. I want some solid truth. And so sometimes, even as a pastor, you find yourself sort of like in front of this carnival of mirrors, and in some you're skinny, and in some you're chunky, and in some you have a big head, and in others you have tall legs and things like that. And so you find yourself asking, well, what do you want me to be? And that's the wrong question. That's why when Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God, he is really latched on to the ultimate truth. It's not about the reflection of the mirror. It's about a faithful stewardship to God. And so we recognize that Paul is free from the bondage of the Corinthians' assessment. In fact, pride always does does weird things to us. When we ask ourselves, what do people think of me? It takes you strange places. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul refers to pride as something that puffs up, physio, which is particularly expressive, and Paul will use it a number of times, five times in the Corinthian letters and once in Colossians 2. It speaks of something that's overinflated, distended, swollen. Think of the word bellows. Think blacksmith shop for a full understanding of the word. Imagine something that's so full of air that it's painful and in danger of bursting. That's what pride does to us. Pride ensures that you never really enjoy anything, and your only thought is about being richer, better looking, or more clever. It's been said that we fear man so much because we fear God so little. We fear man so much. We're men pleasers because we fear God so little. The pride of the Corinthians is actually smothering them. Pride forever forces you to perform. It's like the little organ grinder strikes up the note and the little monkey begins to dance. There is no joy, just duty. Some of us, many of us, spend far too much time working on things that we might apply to our resume. And yet, if the truth be known, we have been away without leave. Notice that Paul is not playing these games. His ego is not an insatiable black hole. He has found the solution. The peanut gallery is not calling the shots. The Corinthians don't control this man because first and foremost, he belongs to God. And so Paul is not sweating the bondage of the Corinthians' assessment. That leads us to a a progression here 
our second anchor point, Paul doesn't even judge himself. I find this utterly fascinating as well. He says this, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Verse 4, he goes on, for I know of nothing against myself. Yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Notice, secondly, that Paul doesn't believe that his own perspective is sacrosanct or perfect. One of the prevailing tugs of our culture today is that it essentially says whatever you think is proper and right. As long as you're sincere, right? It doesn't matter what you believe if you believe it. And yet Paul says just because my own personal assessment is this, that doesn't mean it's correct or right. Paul essentially says it doesn't matter to me, Corinthians, that you judge me. It doesn't even matter the assessment that I have of me. Be very careful in the world in which we live because the prevailing winds of our culture is whatever you think is right. I uh, heard some little gals singing, let it go. And uh, our kids are well past Disney and cartoons, but my wife and I wanted to do a little research because you've got to exegete your culture. And so we got some popcorn, sat down to do a little research. <laughs> Fascinating lyrics. Let me give you just a little bit. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. I am one with wind and sky. Let it go. Let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand and here I'll stay. Let the storm rage on. Now, I'm not suggesting don't watch this stuff. What I am suggesting is that use it as a teachable moment for discernment. Because when you unpack those cute little words, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. If you don't know that that does not square with this book, then you need to spend more time in the book. But the reality is that that's commonplace. That's everywhere. This is like the fog that we breathe in. And all week long, many of us have been told, whatever you think is right, Whatever you want to do, that's okay. No right, no wrong. Whatever is right for you. Paul blows that apart when he says, when it comes to assessment, it's not what the Corinthians say, and it's not what I say. The reality is, is that there is a glorious freedom, but it happens only when we stop connecting every experience, every impression, every conversation to ourselves. Paul does not sit around gnawing on his nails, gazing at his navel, determined to be all that he can be. He has found himself in another place, in a better place. What is the truth that set Paul's, Paul apart from the pack? Well, it's not the Corinthians' assessment. It's not even, secondly, his assessment. It is thirdly and finally found in chapter 4 and verse 4. This is really, folks, the key that unlocks the door. Paul rightly leaves the judging to God. Paul rightly leaves the judging to God. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but, which is a huge word of contrast in Scripture, 
but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul simply declares in verse 4 that the ultimate verdict belongs to another. Tim Keller, upon whose shoulders I stand, uses the analogy of the courtroom, saying that every day we are in court. It's a court complete with prosecution and defense. Paul has found the secret. The trial has come to an end. The verdict has been reached. The ultimate verdict is in. Paul is declaring here in 1 Corinthians 4.4 that the Lord judges him and that the Lord's verdict alone is the one that counts. This is where the gospel lands on us as the children of God. In every religion and cult and ism, performance leads to a verdict. Check it out. Research it. Think about it. Ponder it this afternoon. A Muslim would say that performance leads to a verdict. The Buddhist says that performance leads to a verdict. The Mormon confesses that performance leads to a verdict. The religious believes that performance leads to a verdict. But in verse 4, Paul says that the verdict leads to performance. The verdict leads to performance. Paul's thoughts about himself do not justify him. He who judges me, he says, is the Lord. And this is the bedrock of the gospel. This is ground zero for us. Paul says that it is God who judges Anacrino. It's God's analysis, his scrutiny, his investigation, his examination that is supreme. The verdict is in. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The Apostle Paul is not tweaking his resume He's not some approval junkie. He is forgiven and free, and he's enjoying the liberating glory of self-forgetfulness. Al Mohler, I think, expressed this so well. He said, most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them, and their solution is found within. In other words, they believe that they have an alien problem that's resolved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not our own, end quote. He's got it. There it is. The substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ, making us free, setting us at liberty from this ridiculous approval, junkie situation. There is a truth here. John the Baptist, when he declares Christ must increase and he must decrease, this is no merit badge. This is no document that we hang on the wall. This is rather to say Christ and Christ alone. The verdict is in. I'm a sinner condemned, undone before his holiness but that there has been this glorious work that is now covering me, that has made payment for my sin. I have found in Jesus Christ rescue. Ultimately, Jesus goes to the courtroom, pleads for my pardon based on his work. And dear folks, whenever we find ourselves sucked back into the courtroom, standing accused at the witness stand, when the enemy of our soul accuses you, dear ones, send Jesus to answer the door. When the foul one reminds you of your past, please remind him of his future. Our holy substitute rises to plead our case. It's not about us and our performance. 
It's about his work on our behalf. Paul is gloriously free because Jesus Christ has come as his advocate. Free people are forgiven people. I I close with this. Louis Zamperini's story is only half told in that excellent book, Unbroken. The really juicy parts are left out. Let me give you the timeline to this man's life. He was basically a juvenile delinquent a local track star, an Olympic runner, World War II bombardier, crash survivor, and castaway, Japanese POW, and then returning war hero, but the war didn't end for Louis. And coming home, his life quickly unraveled, PTSD, alcoholism, violent outbursts, and terrifying nightmares. Every night, the brutal prison guard was waiting for him to beat and abuse him again and again, and Louis was a wreck. Nothing would relieve his agony. His status as a hero could not answer the deep trauma of his heart. But God's love would not let Louis go. The hound of heaven marched silently after this tortured man. One glorious night, his wife was saved at a Billy Graham meeting, so she begged her husband to come along. He went under duress. And guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. By all accounts, he loathed the first meeting, but he agreed to go to one more. And at that next meeting, God took this badly broken man and loved him and saved him and changed him. Louis understood what it was like to forget about himself and delight in another's work for him. He was able to be free at last. And this reminds me that anyone here who is not free at the foot of the cross can this morning be free at last. Do you know this kind of freedom? Are you maybe living in a hall of mirrors? These few words are a way out. Paul says, you know what? doesn't matter, Corinthians, that you judge me. It doesn't even matter that I judge me. All that really matters is God's assessment of me. The challenge for us is to forget about ourselves and magnify his name and worship him. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be together. Thank you for those that you have used who have gone before us. Thank you for the liberty that they have enjoyed. And I would pray for this church that we would enjoy that delicious liberty that comes from forgetting about ourselves. Father God, we serve you not out of compulsion, but out of gratitude and thankfulness, and it changes everything. So Father, I pray that we might delight in this liberty. Father, for those that are free, we are free indeed. We pray that we'd live it out with joy and energy and enthusiasm. Father, I'm mindful as well that there might be some here who are still trying to do and be and accomplish their way to forgiveness. I pray that they would see high and lifted up, that they would look to Jesus and live today. I pray, Lord God, that they would see in you a rescuer and a redeemer. We thank you, Lord, for this passage. We pray that you would sing it in our hearts all week long. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.